Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the May 29, 2018 edition of Ask a Leader. If you're uh, up for a cup of java at the Monopoly coffee purveyor, well, you perhaps didn't hear that that Starbucks battened down the hatches to look and work inwardly on bias training. I might, I might think about bias training at the sheriff's office. That, who knows if that will come up. The startup of many steps that they promise to make, of which many firms are taking note. And hurricane season doesn't officially begin until June 1st, but Alberto has other plans in the Gulf of Mexico. Hunker down East Coast residents and U.S. taxpayers. Today, we continue our California primary June 5, that is, coverage. First, we'll hear from Congress, the California 48th Congressional District Democratic candidate Omar Siddiqui. My second guest is Duke Wynn, one of three candidates running for Orange County Sheriff in an open election this year. As with previous coverage, the focus remains on policy. This is the last show before the June 5th election. Voters can confirm their registration, open election at the uh, the website ocvote.com forward slash registration. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. In the continued coverage of Orange County congressional campaigns, my guest for this portion of the hour is Omar Siddiqui, running as a Democrat in the 48th Congressional District, the seat of which is held by Dana Rohrbacher. I still have not heard from Republican challenger Scott Baugh's campaign after my several attempts to arrange an interview. For those of you following this district closely, his presence on the top two vote-getter advances to the general election, or the jungle primary, as it is increasingly being called, it begs Orange County's full attention. While the press follows the horse race, Community Radio remains dedicated to the proposition of giving listeners an opportunity to listen in on policy. As usually promised, if the candidate gets a bit cozy with the stump speech, they risk malfunctioning microphones. My guest is Omar Siddiqui, a Democrat since he left the GOP affi- his GOP affiliation in 2009, maintains his law practice at Olwelling Siddiqui Limited Liability Partnership in Costa Mesa, and he resides in Fullerton. He serves as an advisor and consultant on national security and counterterrorism, is FBI National Director of Special Projects, and was formerly chairman of the Board of Directors FBI LA. He advised and was a community partner with the CIA. Omar Siddiqui is an alliance member of the InfraGuard, an FBI Joint Regional Intelligence Center and Orange County Private Sector Terrorism Response Group. In addition, he advises the Fullerton Police Department on the Police Chief's Advisory Committee. As a Muslim, he's worked with the FBI and CIA to build bridges with the Islamic community in the region. Omar Siddiqui was raised in Southern California and attended public schools in Orange County. He completed his Bachelor's of Science and his Master's of Science in Engineering at USC and his law degree at Loyola 
Law School at Loyola Marymount, where he now serves as a board member of the school's board directors. He joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Omar Sadiqi. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me today. It's good to be back. I uh, did my freshman, sophomore years here at UC Irvine, so it's good to see the uh, the campus again after all this time. That means that should have been popped into your bio. Well, typically, it's useful to tap into what a candidate is learning from canvassing local constituents. But I, for comparability's sake, with the congressional candidates that I've interviewed, why the U.S. congressional race do you file in, and why here? Excellent, excellent question. Well, uh, I, I'm running for Congress uh, because I think it's time for uh, big change. Uh, I'm running because I'm driven by a pursuit of truth and justice. My last name, Siddiqui, uh, even means advocate for the truth. And uh, I was venting to President Obama about the state of our country and what candidate Trump was talking about, division. And uh, it got to a point where after several minutes of venting with the president, he said, you know what, stop. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do to effectuate change? Uh, and I, and I uh, was reflecting on that, uh, and of course that uh, was the path that started me down towards thinking for Congress. Uh, why am I running uh, in the uh, 48th District? Well, the 48th District has been a major part of everything I do. Uh, I I've was grew up in Fullerton, but I actually live here in Costa Mesa, uh, and uh, I've been a part of this community. Uh, my law firm that I founded here several years ago, almost uh, 18 years ago, uh, we uh, are based out of the South Coast metro, metro area in Costa Mesa, and uh, we've brought thousands of jobs uh, to the district. Uh, we've uh, represented clients in the courts in this district, uh, and I help the FBI in protecting this district. This district is home for me. Okay, I'm going to use the jobs for a segue into one of the many fast-breaking developments just within this last week, that the Supreme Court ruling... Uh, that limits workers' rights by allowing the use of arbitration clauses in employment contracts to, to prohibit workers from joining in class action suits. The dissenting opinion, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, weighed in with the necessity of con- the Congress to address this matter. What would you do as a congressional member to remedy what came out of that ruling? I think that ruling uh, was a mistake. Uh, I think what's happening uh, is the decision is actually favoring uh, employers uh, from bringing uh, class action-based lawsuits, and I think that's a big mistake. Uh, In Congress, what I'm going to do is I'm going to effectuate legislation that's going to allow and permit uh, employee rights and have them uh, have that ability uh, to challenge uh, their employers, even when it's a cla- on a class action basis, to make sure that employers and, and big corporations are on equal footing uh, with their employees. Otherwise, you have a disparity uh, in that legal balance. And as we go through all of these policies, it's always going to be a kind of a guess who's in the majority and what kind of leadership you'll have to work with to, to get that. So it's exactly. it's it's going to draw on every talent anybody ever had to uh, work with, whichever, maybe, uh, what, depending on how many headwinds you have to, to work with there. So and, the, and that's where having a, a trial lawyer as your representative is going uh, to be huge. Having a lawyer to uh, advocate for the constituency and the em- employees is going to be powerful. And recently also, uh, I was admitted to, to practice before the United States Supreme Court. So uh, w- when elected, I will be uh, able to be your representative not only on the House floor, but if there's something on the House floor I do not like or I think is unconstitutional, I literally can cross the street. Has that ever happened? A congressional nope. member? That- um, I was told by the Supreme Court historian uh, that I was one of the f- 
few in history of a candidate, first in history as a candidate to be sworn into the Supreme Court by the justices. And, and uh, thank God it was a, a unanimous 6-0 decision to admit me. Oh, okay. Well, another uh, development was, it was last week, that the Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, was signaling uh, with her persistent disposition to unravel protections for consumers of for-profit college industry. It's Now, th- that is another uh, a response. The House is poised to carry some of this water with the overhaul of the Higher Education Act. What would you do in that case? Well, I think in that case, we need to go back to the fundamentals. Think about this. is Teachers, universities deserve our support and better pay. Uh, what makes our nation uh, amongst the most powerful in the world isn't just our mighty military uh, or our great economy uh, or our strength. It's actually our education, our thrive uh, for knowledge and education. Uh, and I think it's important that our government realize that we need to spend more money uh, on education, colleges, uh, universities than we do on prisons. California, as you know, even on the on the uh, public side of things, has the highest class size uh, in the nation when it comes to elementary schooling and, and high school, and that has to change too. But as to the consumer aspect, though, the consumer protection of these for-profit college systems, so what kinds of measures would you envision there? Well, I envision that the federal government has to make sure that if these private for-profit education centers are going to exist, that they are actually governed to ensure that they have the appropriate level of education required. They have to be qualified to be able to offer degrees. A big example of that is Trump University. What a travesty. What a joke Trump University uh, has turned out to be. Uh, It's a matter of just turning money over to Trump University for not much education or background. And to answer your question, that's what we need to do, is to make sure that there's appropriate regulation to ensure that you don't have private institutions taking advantage uh, of prospective applicants like that. So the Consumer Pro- uh, Protection Bureau now is also getting uh, unraveled. And so I'm asking all of the congressional candidates about uh, how you would hold the line there where uh, consumers are concerned. Well, uh, I think what's critical uh, is that the federal government work hand-in-hand with the state legislature to make sure uh, that there are uh, adequate codes that protect the consumers in all facets of of business. For example, uh, California uh, has a business and professions code, 17200, uh, unfair competition, that allows uh, prospective plaintiffs to challenge uh, any businesses uh, that... uh, take advantage and undercut uh, the community and other businesses. I think from a federal perspective, we need to have something similar to Business and Professions Code 17200 uh, on the federal level. Okay. So, last week, Senator Johnson is started to lead the effort to punish banks in this country who have decided to withdraw their business relationship with the National Rifle Association. So, I know you're running for a congressional seat, but there there will be two chambers that would that would consider perhaps how that financial uh, relationship is pursued. But I I would like for you to weigh in though what what that is telling us about the politicization of uh, in new in wholly new territories of, of finance. Yeah, I think what it's doing is it's uh, a byproduct 
of the government's ability, Congress's inability, uh, the White House's inability to act on a crisis and an epidemic. Uh, gun safety is a critical issue. We have catastrophe after catastrophe after catastrophe, massacre after massacre occurring. It's getting to a point we're now desensitized. Uh, and now uh, students are fed up, colleges are fed up, and now we, the consumers, are now even challenging where we put our money and making sure that the businesses that we support, the airlines we fly on, the banks that we deposit our money on, are actually being responsible too. But think about that for a second, the power of that. It's the, literally the power of the people. And if we're not able to do it through our Congress, through our representatives, well, we're going to do it through our, through our pocketbook. And that's exactly uh, what I think Bank of America and these other businesses are feeling. And I don't look at that as a bad thing per se, but I look at that as a thing that they shouldn't have to resort to that because it's up to our representatives to represent. And they're not doing that. So apparently Bank of America is now going to make our NRA statement for us if Dana Rohrbacher is not going to. I guess it's the dynamic, though, of exacting something. I mean, a, a, the Senate acting a, as deliverer of punitive measures. I mean, a sort of disincentives for certain things. So it's. I, I just wanted you to comment on that kind of dynamic, whether that really is of the appropriateness of that. Well, I think it's a double-edged sword uh, because you're going to start getting to a position where uh, if you have corporations taking uh, positions because uh, their consumers want them to uh, versus the Senate now trying to uh, disincentivize or incentivize uh, corporations to do or not do something, that's, that's a slippery slope. That's somewhat dangerous. So for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Omar Siddiqui, trial lawyer, engineer, Democratic candidate in California's 48th Congressional District, the incumbent of whom is Dana Rohrbacher. The district is centered in Huntington Beach and includes Seal Beach, Sunset Beach, Huntington Beach, I said Midway City, parts of Westminster, Fountain Valley, parts of Garden Grove, parts of Santa Ana, San Juan Capistrano, Costa Mesa, Newport Beach, parts of Elisa Viejo, Laguna Beach, and even parts of a few of, of Irvine and parts of Luna Laguna. And you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web where voters are flying through their absentee ballots all over the world at KUCI.org. Well, with your background, we really have to give some some good consideration here. Your background in terrorism. I want to bring up the immigration situation now. It's blowing up all over on uh, various media platforms about the families that are seeking asylum and how family members are being handled and managed and processed. So what remedies are there for the White House's current practice of separating offspring from their families? Uh, I'm so glad you raised this question. Uh, Just yesterday on Facebook, after not being able to really stomach what's happening there right now uh, with you know, the, the government losing track of 1,500 children and not being able to, to unify, unite them uh, and get them you know, back to their parents was just tragic. Yesterday, uh, I posted uh, that uh, as a lawyer, uh, if any parents uh, or migrant children that have become separated, uh, if they wanted to reach out to me and my law firm, uh, I will represent uh, those families uh, against the government for, for this uh, atrocity. This is not the America who we are to separate parents and kids. Simply, that's not who we are. 
Uh, we are uh, a nation of immigrants, uh, as uh, I say often. My father was an immigrant from British India uh, in the 1950s. Prior to partition, prior Pakistan. to prior to partition, you okay. know, uh, you know, Br- British British India, right? And so, one one quote that always resonates with me is a Martin Luther King quote that we may have all come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. And that goes back to your question. It's like, what are we going to do? Well, I think the first thing we have to do is we have to support, and I will support, comprehensive immigration reform uh, that includes protecting the dreamers by giving them legal status. Uh, and not just the dreamers. We have to make sure that the other 11 million uh, other undocumented uh you know, residents are considered. DACA needs a clean path uh, to citizenship, and that's going to be key. I don't support building a wall at all. I don't think building a wall is going to solve any issues. Uh, if we're serious about infrastructure as an engineer, I prefer bridges over walls. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, to continue to continue separating uh, children from parents, uh, this is not uh, da- going down a, a good path for any of us. Well, with your your work in terrorism and security, what's Let's give you an opportunity to talk about what does a practice like this do in making policy and in in making I mean, what does this do in terms of real security? Well, uh, the truth is, uh, as a current uh, FBI director of special projects and a current FBI advisor, I can tell you what it does. It doesn't make us safer. It actually makes our country more dangerous uh, because now uh, you are getting the the vision uh, of the United States uh, being the villain, uh, that we are a nation that, that is okay with separating and breaking up families. And that's not okay. That's not who we are. That doesn't make us any safer at all. Um, in fact, the opposite. So Congress is now faced with a huge opportunity to overhaul the federal criminal justice system. The House prison bill known as the First Step Act, it establishes incentives to reduce recidivism and set up an early release mechanism. Some broader sentence reform like mandatory minimums are part of the horse trading underway. Speak to how you'd participate in these negotiations as a member of Congress. Thank you. And again, this is where being a lawyer, having been a trial attorney for the last 20 years, will come in handy. Uh, I've also worked uh, criminal matters uh, on both sides. And so I know how important uh, this reform is. Uh, When I get to Congress, what I'm going to do is I'm going to reach out, uh, regardless of of party affiliation, I'm going to reach out uh, to make sure that what we do uh, is uh, enact legislation that provides complete overhaul and puts more money uh, into uh, education uh, so we do not have repeat offenders coming in and out. For example, one thing that uh, it just troubles me about our uh, criminal justice system is there are some people who need rehabilitation. They, need, uh, they have substance abuse issues. Uh, they have personal issues. And having them cycle in and out of the prison is not going to cure what their problem is or what the problems are. Uh, they need help. And that's something that needs to be overhauled uh, head to toe. Well, so with your legal background and training and dynamic skill set, so it looks like we're poised in policymaking now with having a law that deals with these uh, these 
the recidivism mm-hmm. and all. And in fact, I noticed that this would make it uh, would ban the shackling of pregnant women. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the stakes are really high. Of course, uh, establishing uh, all kinds of maybe products, feminine hygiene products. I've even read that uh, that now that would be a given that they'd be available. But so there's a temptation for some pragmatic members of Congress to adopt whatever they've got now. But that means the mandatory sentencing might not that opportunity may go away there may not be leverage to bring that along so it's there's a lot of coalitions that are breaking so how do you deal with managing that kind of a complex dynamic underway well uh, and i am so glad you asked that question because i think what it means and shows is that this is a system that's broken to a point we're trying to fix it um is not going to work uh, i think what needs to happen uh, is we need to stop the privatization of jails. We need to stop the privatization and making jails a for-profit enterprise, which, of course, those for-profit enterprises then feed back to their representatives. We need to stop that. We need to change that. That's not going to make our country more educated. In fact, that's going to make our country, uh, you know, most of the population uh, surviving in prisons. That's not who we are again. Uh, what we need to do is make sure that we have uh, a jail system, a criminal justice reform system that allows for rehabilitation, allows for people to break out of that criminal cycle. So let's say you're in Congress. So with the First Step Act, would you vote on that now or would you hold out for leveraging more consideration of those mandatory sentencing? Well, I would think that what we need to do is uh, hold off, but uh, not wait too long. And when I say that, uh, again, I'm sounding like a lawyer right now, but I don't want it's to. It's an election year. Right? It's an election year. Yeah. Uh, but bottom line, I, I need to say what's right. And what's right is we need to make sure that if we're going to do a patchwork fix, uh, that this patchwork fix is going to actually work. Uh, otherwise, all we're doing is delaying the inevitable. So in my opinion, it has to be done uh, sooner than later. Uh, I would say within the first 60 to 90 days of taking office, Uh, I would want something uh, enacted. Uh, I think uh, 60 to 90 days would give us enough time to to rally support, uh, add in some additional provisions to make sure that we cut out the privatization uh, and make sure that we get uh, justice back into the justice system. So I'm surprised I'm not hearing anything mentioned about the fiscal impacts of of these mandatory sentences, that, that that's got to appeal to a broader portion of the legislation, legislature, to, to bring them on board with trimming those mandatory sentences. It's uh, expensive, and so I, I, I'm just curious. Oh, you, no, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, th- that's, that's the reality of, of uh, this legislation. But um, there's one thing I can tell you, having you know, been a, a trial attorney here in Orange County, Southern California, for uh, over the last two decades, is uh, Orange County uh, and California cut funding to the courts. They cut out court reporters. They cut out uh, court staff. Uh, out of money. And I can tell you uh, that when you cut money from the justice system, that doesn't save money in the long run. That actually makes it much worse. So yes, you're absolutely right. To talk about the fiscal impact of this and, and how much money we could save is important. But there are certain things, I think, like when it comes to our justice and our criminal reform, uh, sometimes uh, we'll pay for it in, in the long run. Well, that's, uh, that's what I was thinking is that incarceration itself is expensive. Exactly. And so uh, you could probably, well, We've talked about that and, and other policy discussions and other shows. Well, let's we can't we can't close things down without a chance to talk about the Tax Overhaul Act, as that was slowly unfolding with great certainty that was going to bump our deficit up in a, in a growing economy. What's your approach 
to representing the 48th on this one? Um, you have great questions today. Um, and what I love about this question is it because it comes down to the brass tacks. Uh, what are the families of the 48th district uh, going to get from tax relief? Uh, in, in everyday language, working class families, not corporations, need tax relief, right? Corporations have to pay their fair share of taxes, and we have to cut back on loopholes that allow companies like GE to pay 0% in taxes. Uh, I do support tax reductions for the middle class uh, and expanding child tax credits. Um, the GOP uh, bill uh, was not tax reform. In my opinion, uh, it was tax fraud that was forced down the throat of every single working class and middle class American. Uh, what I'm going to do uh, in Congress is I'm going to support uh, a tax overhaul that focuses on the middle class, that focuses on small business, uh, that supports vocational training uh, like those that are offered by trade unions. I want to support a $15 uh, indexed uh, minimum wage. I, I believe that the federal uh, minimum wage uh, should be kept up with inflation, and I encourage states to go above and beyond uh, any federal minimums. Um, I favor restructuring regulation, uh, again, to help small businesses to ensure that big corporations don't violate and get, uh, uh, you know, take advantage of the system. Budgets, again, cannot be balanced on the back of the middle class or working class Americans. Uh, a, a quick example is uh, reversing deductions on state and local taxes, mortgage deducts, deductions, property taxes, uh, not being able to deduct those. Those hurt everyday middle class Americans, especially here in California. So we have to change that. We we also have to keep our eyes on protecting and expanding Social Security and taking care of our veterans. Okay, so what about then? Well, let's think about the tech sector. And now it's been quite a while now since Facebook CEO Zuckerberg testified. Yeah. But since then, we've had now it's it's being codified the European rules, the General Data Protection Regulation. It's now adopted. So what would you in your capacity as a Congress member codify in the um, in American legislation protections for privacy with the use of the internet and well, all kinds of third-party applications. I, I, I'm, I'm so glad you asked this question. Um, I have uh, had multiple uh, emotional conversations with President Obama about uh, natural, national security, uh, privacy, uh, and the protection of confidential information uh, and the government's ability uh, to access private information. Uh, so much so, uh, it was a very, very uh, passionate, heated uh, debate. Uh, and what I loved about it is I was arguing with President Obama uh, that what we need to do is to ensure that our government, when we are protecting the homeland, we do so without compromising our constitutional rights and liberties, bottom line. And I felt that the NSA and some of the programs that were in effect breached that constitutional line. It got to a point where even President Obama uh, smirked at me and said, hey, you're forgetting I'm a constitutional law professor, right? And I, and I told him, right, challenging him. And, I, and what I always respected about him is uh, he always welcomed ideas and he always welcomed that, that passionate debate. Every time we spoke after that, he would always call me Omar the lawyer because of that. But getting back down to your question is we need to make sure uh, that our uh, national security doesn't violate our constitutional rights. I do believe that we need to have legislation uh, that uh, is uh, robust, uh, that protects our country, uh, but however, does not encroach on uh, our civil liberties like it's been done in the past. 
So what did you make of the California Consumer Privacy Act? It's making its way to qualifying to be on our November statewide ballot. So is that uh, how how much does that remedy this and at what it's, is its potential for perhaps outpacing national legislative outcomes? I think it's a good start. I think it's a good start because we got to start somewhere. Uh, I think it's a good start in ensuring that corporations have to have a minimum threshold uh, on how they're going to treat uh, our data. For example, the hacks into Target uh, and Experian. Uh, as you may know, and again, uh, you know, having you know working in the intelligence community, even when you have international hacks into our government and all our lists of all our federal employees are have now been identified to be in the hands of foreign actors, including our FBI and intelligence community operatives. That's a very dangerous thing. Uh, and so as a result, I like the fact uh, that we have uh, uh, an act at the state level uh, that is going to be addressing some of those protections. I'll close with, you know, just remember, it's a dangerous world out there. And we need uh, a congressman who understands uh, national security, uh, who's well-versed in diplomacy, who has worked with the intelligence community and is ready on day one. So. So let's talk a the bit um, with two more questions to go here is it's uh, I think we're starting to hear an alarm sounding about the sort of check and balance dysfunction at this point in the legislative in, in the national leadership arena. So it's we can talk about what congressional candidates want to do, but the legislative arena uh, branch of government is getting bypassed by extraordinary measures extraordinary new norms that are being established now out of the White House. So uh, with your constitutional law background, this this is uh, how menacing to, in your mind? Um, I love the word menacing, but I would honestly say it's a threat to our democracy. It's a very threat uh, to our government. It's a very threat to uh, what America stands for. Uh, I get asked the question all the time, as you can imagine. Yeah. So when you're a congressman, are you going to support Trump? Uh, but aren't you, you know, pro-Obama because you worked with the Obama administration or you worked with Director Comey? And my comment is this. Uh, at the end of the day, you want your congressman uh, under Articles 1, 2, and 3 of the Constitution, the three branches of government, the f- brilliant framers of our Constitution set forth three branches of government. I'm, I sound like I'm uh, going back to high school uh, civics class here, but civics bottom line. never tired. Civics no. 101, right? But the end of the day, you have an inefficient government in three branches of government, but why did our framers do this? They did this because they wanted to ensure that the power remains with the people. And right now, when you have a Congress that is looking the other way, and while you have a White House that is literally doing what it wants, when it wants, and even just yesterday, if not the day before, President Trump made a comment of, you know, we don't really need judges. We don't all necessarily need to have uh, so many judges, it, which which is a threat to our th- third and, and one of the most equally powerful uh, branches of government, the judicial branch. Uh, we are unfortunately falling down and losing our democracy without the checks and balances. How I respond to those people who ask me if I would support Trump, my response is this. If any president, I don't care who it is, if any president does something good, It's your job, my job as congressman, to support that. And if any president does something wrong or illegal that's harmful to our country, regardless of party affiliation, it is my job as your congressman to stop it. And that is what congressmen and our representatives have forgotten, is that they're putting 
party before people. They're putting politics before what's right, and, and, and they're putting partisan politics ahead. Bottom line, we need to put our country first. So it's one week before the California primary where the top two vote getters, I can't say it enough, on June 5th, the top two vote getters advance to the general election regardless of what party they're in. Where, Omar Siddiqui, can listeners hear and meet you in the time running up to next Tuesday? Well, I'm going to be knocking on as many doors as possible. I'm going to be out in the streets uh, shaking as many hands uh, as possible. But one thing I'm doing uh, that that no other candidate uh, is doing, because of all of the candidates on the ballot, uh, I'm a candidate that is trying to represent everyone. We have a district that's 40% Republican, 30% Democrat, 30% undecided. Uh, I'm focusing on getting out the vote, getting out the Democratic vote, uh, first-time voters, millennials. Uh, I'm focusing on common-sense Republicans who are tired of Dana Rohrabacher and Trump's antics. Uh, and uh, especially important, too, is, uh, as you can see in recent elections, we have to reach out to the, the, the people of color, uh, the under-marginalized, the underrepresented. Uh, in fact, in Alabama, it was the people of color uh, who stopped Roy Moore uh, from getting elected. Uh, as the only person of color on the ballot, uh, I am pushing towards the Asian American communities, uh, the Latin communities, uh, to make sure they get out and come to vote. I think I'll just want to jump on one distinction that you made when you broke down the, the party registration. I'm thinking the no party preference. They've decided. They're not undecided. They've decided not to have a party preference. Correct. So um, that's because and they'll be back. Correct. They're listening. So, well, that's all the time we have. Thank you, Omar Siddiqui, for coming in studio with us today. The pleasure was mine. Thank you. My guest was Omar Siddiqui, trial lawyer and engineer, one of several Democratic candidates in the California 48th Congressional District, challenging the incumbent, Dana Rohrbacher. To learn more about us, please visit omarinthehouse.com. We'll take a short break, and then we'll talk with my next guest, Duke Nguyen, senior investigator of the, for the Los Angeles County District Attorney, running for the open seat of Orange County Sheriff. We'll be right back after a short break. Welcome back to the show. That track was Nicodemus, A Long Engagement, on the Wonder Wheel album. Thanks for staying tuned with us. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Duke Nguyen, Senior Investigator for the Los Angeles County District Attorney, running for the open seat of Orange County Sheriff. Also running are Under Sheriff Don Barnes and Elisa Viejo Mayor Dave Harrington. Duke Nguyen's life story is quite the saga, leading out of South Vietnam through Malaysia, eventually landing in the U.S., namely Orange County, in 1981. Well, that's the sanitized version anyway. Uh, every refugee immigrant has a much more detailed story, so I, I skipped through that rather quickly. He graduated at Saddleback High School, then attended Cal State University Long Beach, where he completed his degree in administrative criminal justice. In 1992, he began his service at Santa Ana Police Department. Then, for the last decade, he's worked with the L.A. District Attorney's Office in the Justice System Integrity Division. Duke Nguyen and his wife live in North Tustin with their two children. He joins me in studio today. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Duke Nguyen. 
Good morning, Claudia, and good morning to our audience listener out there at, at uh, KUCI. Thank you. Well, let's first, I'm, I'm going to open it all the way up with a broad, expansive sort of look at, a look-see on, in this institution. Let's first, Mr. Duke Nguyen, let's first have you talk generally about the relationship or relationships that the sheriff has with the district attorney, with the communities, and with the cities that retain the sheriff's department for their public security. Why does it matter to folks who are, some of you glued your screens, uh, we want some eyes over here. Why does this relationship with the sheriff matter? Talk, talk about that. Well, it's a matter because, you know, uh, the sheriff's department is a community service, and it's also it's a partnership service. So we have to interact. Uh, together, uh, the sheriff department, the district attorney office, and our communities uh, to provide uh, public safety. That's the job of the sheriff department to provide prosecutions and uh, prosecute our criminals. That's belong to the district attorney office, and it's also belong to our community that we have to be transparent. Uh, to our community, let our community know the events, the things that are happening, crimes that are happening, or events that are happening, and the prosecution that are happening, because our community have the right to know and understand what is going on in their community. Currently, right now, there is a disconnect in in the sheriff department and the district attorney office. They're not communicating, and hence, if you're not communicating, you're not working together to better serve our community. So uh, I'm not sure um, this is from the field, but how many cities are is the sheriff's department providing pu- public security for? So we can talk about it's the unincorporated areas where the sheriff is, and the sheriff's at the the Orange County at the the John Wayne Airport. But what's the number of cities that are retaining the sheriff for their public safety? I believe it's going to be about twenty, twenty one, twenty two cities total. And that's a lot. And as proportionate of the population, that that could be. A, a considerable fraction of the county residents. It, it is because it's all pretty much South County. So we're talking about from City of Leisure VA here all the way on down to uh, San Clemente. And so um, your your experience right now is in Los Angeles County. Is there is there a comparable kind of percentage and th- with the consequences of this relationship of community with sheriff's department employees? Well, it, it is because, you know, the, the main concern right now for the Orange County Sheriff is building a, a good community, community relationship, especially in community partnership with our community. It, it's important because we have to build that bond and we have to build, reach out to our community, let them know that our deputies are there to serve and protect them. At the same time, when there's a need of service, uh, we will respond, and, you know, at the moment uh, the call go out. So that's important. I, I've been hearing what our community vo- voicing to me is that um, they have, you know, it take up a longer time for the deputy to response. At the same time, my really concern is that there are not enough patrol vehicle units down in what I call South County, so basically identifying from uh, Alicia Vieira all the way on down to San Clemente, because I, I want more uh, police services. I want more officers out in the street. I want more SRO, school resources officers. I want them to assign to each and every school. And that talk about uh, building a relationship with our community is being present and let let our community know that uh, you know that the men and women in the, in the Orange County Sheriff is there to protect. Not only that, is a moment's call. They will be there for the service. I guess what I'd like to find out with this opportunity is what. You're, let's say you're given some discretion in your budget. What would be like your dream community sheriff policing initiative? 
if you start? We'll be having a uh, senior community patrol program. I want the South County community to come out and interact with our, our deputies going to classes. Let the, our community know that uh, these are the officers who will res- work in the community for a length of time. These are the cu- officers who's going to uh, take our community and show them uh, through trainings how they go through their training and hopefully put a little bit more training to our community through the education process. So when our community call in for our for service, they know what it is to um, you know, provide to the officer. At the same time, we want to, like I said, we want to build that bond where we can have that trust back in our communities. So with the, the um, I, I mentioned at the very beginning of this entire program about the bias training going down and that lots of private sector is watching what happens. It's a, it's a one-shot deal. They open up their stores back at uh, 2.30, whatever, at each of the time zones. I don't know how this works. But, but so is your community policing initiative you're looking at, ideally, is this some inward kind of bias training, but inward as well as being aware of biases for a call that's coming in that maybe doesn't need to be accelerated in the, with the law enforcement yes. personnel present? Yes, it is. Uh, Implicit bias training is very important, and that's something that I wanted to implement in that training, making sure that all the deputies are aware and understand of the bias uh, uh, trainings that they're given to and how to better serve in our communities. So it is important that I want to implement that training. It's certainly, it's a very complicated process, and there's already, even in advance of the day's program taking place lots of criticism that it's a very complicated it's a huge investment but you're 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 confident that there it can make an impact in in policing in orange county yes it is because uh, i'm a reformer so that is going to have to change my men and women shall understand that that training is important that training that they will have on their their tool belt that they will utilize that as they go out and serving our communities well i I, when I sort of look at various aspects of your campaign and uh, your presentation, is it fair to say that you're kind of a, a disruption of a few molds in law enforcement in Orange County? Your platform is uh, systemic corruption, racism, and disenfranchisement of those whom are most ill-prepared to help themselves. That's that's in some of your literature. But you, are are you do you see yourself as a bit of a disruptor in the, the amidst this law enforcement culture and and in Vietnamese and Southeast Asian communities in Orange County? Yes, I am. Like I said, I am a reformer. I believe in changing our law enforcement style to better serve our community. There are many changes need to be done in law enforcement. We are in the 21st century, yet right now the current uh, sheriff's department are still out of date. They're still working the old policy in the 20th century. We have lots of issues that we have to uh, change, reform, and implement, such as body camera. That's one of the issues where I take uh, strongly in is having a body camera. At the same time, also helping our homeless uh, get them off the street and providing mental health uh, care and mental health trainings. And so that goes back to some of the sort of my expansive opening question about your relationship with the the district attorney, but it's also your relationship with the county board of supervisors. I didn't include them in the, the entity. So you're, you as a sheriff would have to make the case for resources being spent, not not sort of banked, but being spent to address 
it's whether it's an emergency or some of the more proactive approaches. Yes, it is. I will. I will have to work with the board to make sure that you know they're taking action because uh, together, like I said, together the board of supervisors, the district attorney office, and the sheriff department, we are serving our community. If we don't spend those money, we don't take actions. Uh, problems going to get uh, worse down the line. We need to identify the problem, the issues, and come up with a resolution to help our community. And like I said, uh, getting a homeless off the street and get them into their shelter and providing m- mental health. That's the number one things what the board supervisor, the district attorney office, and the sheriff have to sit down and work together. For those of you listeners who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on Radio KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web at KUCI.org. We're on Twitter at KUCIFM, Instagram, same handle. We're on Tumblr and Facebook.com uh, forward slash KUCI889. You can find us all over those places. And my guest, most importantly, is Duke Wynn, Senior Investigator for the Los Angeles County District Attorney and former Santa Ana Police Officer. He's a resident of Tustin. He's running for the open seat. There is no sheriff that is up for re-election in Orange County. So, With community policing, we've got drama all over the county. Some of it's imported. We're on to that. We've got this drama with the the state has advanced a... The Senate Bill 54, the sanctuary communities, and the mythologies have grown. And people have added water, and the mythologies have expanded from that. So why don't you respond to... What effect, that's like a culture war. Yes, SB 54, no SB 54. So what does a sheriff do to bring the the temperature down in this collision and make everybody safer? Well, SB 54, Claudia, is the uh, state law of the land. Uh, That has been passed by the state of California. SB 54 uh, simply just... Uh, saying that it's limiting the resources that the sheriff department that would spend on the uh, enforcing uh, federal laws work, working with ICE. SB 54 is very important because, you know, I here as a sheriff department and here as a largest agency law enforcement in the whole county, it is our job to build a better relationship with our community, especially our immigrants community. When the crime occurred in our immigrant community, I want our immigrant uh, to call our law enforcement personnel, whether to the city or to the, to the county level. I want them to recall and to report the crime. And also at the same time, it is crucial that they will go and, and be part of the testimonial uh, in the district attorney office when they get the case, when the case gets filed and helping through the process to prosecute our, our, and convict our, our felon. If the SB, if SB 54 right now, if if my opponent is is opposed to SB 54, well, you endangering our our, com- our immigrant community in the fact that they will it's they will be scared of coming out and reporting the crime. When you don't report the crime or you don't note it, take a report of the crime, the crime in that community will increase because what you have is you can have the criminal elements who's going to say to themselves, look. The police are not taking action, so I'm going to do whatever I want. And that's begin this service to our community. Again, community policing, community partnership is working together to build a stronger community and, to, and a stronger uh, relationship with our immigrant and, and every community in, in the county of Orange. So I believe uh, it is important for me to make sure that 
I obey and follow SB 54 because that is the state law of the land. Well, I noticed in some of those forums for municipalities to opt out of SB 54, the Sanctuary City Law of California, that, well, of course, nuance was taking a bit of a holiday, some of that. So I... I don't know if maybe in your own personal experience, because if we don't have people reporting some kinds of transgressions, domestic abuse, it could be, uh, or uh, at the workplace, there's all, uh, you know, wage theft or mm-hmm. all kinds of things. I, I mean, personally, since we're not we're we're not seeing it official, the retreat of those m- more vulnerable in- instances occurring, and in, in your own sort of personal kind of data mining are you finding this is really those those offenses are not registering there they clearly aren't are not being reported and people are really at risk yes it is when you have our immigrants who are afraid to making the report you're going to have a high increase in in, in crime and like i said uh SB 54 apply only to the county because it apply to custodial. Uh, when you talk about the city level uh, that are coming out right now and doing anti-SB 54, well, you have issues like custody does not apply to the city when a person is arrested in misdemeanor. That person has been getting side out. So you have no custodial uh, issues. When a person is arrested for a felony case, that person is transferred to the Orange County Jail and awaiting for for trial. And again, that city do not have custodials. Everything is transferred to the county jail. So uh, it is disservice for a municipality agency to go out and 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 doing anti fifty four. You're not helping your community because then people again will not go out and report the crime. But it's it's like a tree falling in the woods. No, nobody can hear that offense. That that's that's a part of it's sort of proving a negative is really. Difficult. Yes, it is. I mean, it's not a negative, but pr- proving something. Yes, proving that something that didn't happen is is racking up that. So it's. So let's let's then explore then what has become of Prop Forty Seven, Assembly Bill One Hundred Nine, and Prop Fifty Seven. How that is a factor in what we're talking about in community safety, well, and some and take dispel some myths that have been cropping up in some of my interviews here. Well, you have AB uh, 109, which is passed uh, many years ago, and then 47, and, and lately is the fif- uh, fif- 57, Prop 57. And in telling that uh, what we see is a slight rise in, 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 in property crime because we, we see low-risk inmates are being released. So what I would like to do is go back and, and, and probably amendment a little, a little bit tweak, which is probably uh, having vocational trainings for our, our inmates prior to release because I want our inmates to get back into in to our community and our societies, having some sort of job or some sort of education where they can rely on. So property crime, is that somebody who's been uh, held up or is it in, uh, home th- burglaries or what kind of property? We're talking about property crime in terms of you know, um, home burglaries, car vehicle theft burglaries. Okay. Okay. And it, it is happening. But So that's when people say crime is rising. That's a cherry pick. That That is. But, you know, like I said, it, it, it's solvable. We just have to make sure that uh, the Sheriff's Department and the District Attorney, again, work together to improve the relationship. Uh, in, every, in every community, there's always room for improvement. Okay, so let's talk about the concealed weapon, conceal and carry permits that have a complicated relationship with law enforcement in San Diego County versus Orange County. Why don't you talk about what the trends have been 
after explaining what was the incumbent sheriff's call, the discretion that she practiced that led to this opportunity that's being taken in Orange County by gun owners. Well, you know, first of all, uh, the the Second Amendment right, that is protected by the U.S. Constitution. um, And our, our citizens, you know, I'm not saying that they're not allowed to purchase guns. They can purchase whatever gun they want under that Second Amendment uh, Constitution. But when we're talking about CCW, which is carry conceal uh, weapons, uh, prior to 2007, there's over 6,000 uh, carry conceal weapon that was issued in the Orange County Sheriff Department. In 2017, there's over 7,700 that was I- issued. That's almost one year alone. One year alone. That's so you're talking about almost 20 a day. So as your sheriff coming in, I want to make sure I uh, relook at the 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 uh, the structures, look at the policies and how it is implemented. At the same time, I want to reform, making sure that people are qualified to have a carry conceal weapon. Uh, deserve it, but at the same time, I want to make sure I want to be transparency to our community and to uh, our office and also the district attorney office because uh, having uh, weapons out out on our public is a big responsibility. At the same time, that's uh, at the same time putting our officers, our deputies, at risk when you have people who are carrying concealed weapons. You know, I've never seen the paperwork, so I um, maybe this is a broadside for you, but I what kind of information? Does that permit request, and does it have the applicant state their op- their their profession, and so we can also see how many people in education are getting these? I mean, wh- how, what do we know about those owners of the seventy seven hundred permits taken out last year? Well, they go through a very extensive background checks. Uh, again, they go to you know the Department of Justice. They go to fingerprinting. They go to listing their you know profession and the reason and and, and why. But again, you know, you touch a little bit about the uh, our, our budgets uh, having seventy seven. 100 application going through and with the budget that is increasing I need my men and women to go out in the street protect our community especially uh, our school resources so I'm spending money in this budget here to running around and investigate and and, uh, and approve people for like how much time weapons. what's like let's say a, a full-time equivalent uh, a unit let's say at person hours per one permit to to truth out there it take a very length of time because you know you got to go through fingerprint process you got to wait for that to come back you got to go through putting all the report together you got to do background checks together so it doesn't come overnight it come in, in about weeks and also sometimes months of, of, of investigation and putting the, the the package together so with that discretion practiced by the sheriff that fiscal impact of 700 i'm sorry 7716 applications for concealed carry and it's probably they're probably new ones or it's not like they have a a, a a previous application a previous permit that they're holding maybe so so that is a huge fiscal drain and it's taking away from maybe that's more proactive kind of policing that we're talking about yes it is it definitely wow I'm, I'm just trying to figure out how much money that looks like so so We've talked already a little bit about the contract cities. So um, how about what are some other proactive measures, best practices that you haven't already had a chance to talk about that? This is here's your platform. Well, here's two things that I really want to touch. Number one is that uh, 
school resource uh, officer is very important to me, especially in the South County. And, you know, city says at Staten and That's also That's the SRO Midway, you talked about. The SRO. Long shorthand. I, I wanted to make sure that I, I have uh, bring the numbers down to almost every school have an SRO or school resources officers to better you know, serve our community. Do and they also, make you, do they, uh, let's, you've got children in school, but do, does it make you feel safer to have a, 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 a security resource officer? It is, because what happened is that when you have the school resources officer there, uh, the kids will come and talk to those officers, and we also also talk to our kids about, you know, the, our safety, uh, you know, community, uh, how do we act within the community, the safety. At the same time, we make sure our parents understand when the time of disaster or when time of emergency, where to go, how to contact. Uh, you know, it's very important because uh, at the same time, I'm, I do not want our teachers to arm with guns in the school. That's the last thing I want a teacher to do. I, prefer, I really want teachers to have nothing but paper, pencil, and iPad and teach my kid. I don't want my 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 school, uh, my, uh, school my kids' teachers are coming to, to work having a gun in their purse and now we have to worry about there's another gun in campus already exists in campus. Cross each other? Yeah. Yes. And so, so that's that's important. But the, the number one thing that I really want for my deputy sheriff is body camera. I want body cameras for all deputy sheriff who are on working on their shift and on duty. They shall wear that body camera at all time. So in the very little time, we've got less than a minute here to, to wrap all of these important security issues. I, I would love to know. All right. Let's let's make the last second to last real quick question. Um, what? I mean, the S, the security resource officers, do they get all a, a great deal of training? I mean, just, just yes, real it, shorthand. Definitely, got- definitely a great deal of training because they have to work with school districts. Okay, and the final is, how can listeners meet and greet you in the this last lap? We've got one week before the primary. And well, how does the primary dynamic work for the sheriff's election? Well, it is very important for the to elect a new sheriff because I am here to change. I'm here to make the sheriff's department and my department work and communicate better be more transparent to our community, and our community deserve a better uh, policing and an agency as this large to protect uh, our community. I will be in uh, UCI campus all day today. I will be around in campus, so if anyone wants to, to come and meet and greet or having any issues or questions, please come up and ask. Don't be, don't be shy. I'm here for them. And like I said, I am your people sheriff. Okay. Well, that is all the time we have. I want to thank you, Mr. Duke Wynn, for coming on the show today. I want to thank you for having me on the show, and My, I want to thank for the audience to listen. Absolutely. My guest was Duke Wynn. He is a senior investigator for the, the L.A. County District Attorney and former Santa Ana police officer, resident Tustin. He's running for the open seat of the Orange County Sheriff on the California June 5th primary. So that's the way we do this. Great. I wanted to just uh, let you all know it's a it's tradition on Ask a Leader on election days. I bring on all kinds of voices and uh, t- around from our community, and I'm lining them up, and the, they're going to talk about their citizenship. Get, we'll get real personal. I want everybody to know outside on campus is a pop-up early registration, a pop-up early voting right there at Aldrich Hall between the flagpoles all day today until 8. Six cool things you can do at the vote centers in uh, Orange County, but here's what you can do there. You can vote early, and uh, you, the, I believe you can also at the vote center, you can register to vote, drop off your completed vote by mail. If you've got that little 
absentee ballot already done. You can get a replacement ballot if you've lost your vote by mailman, but that's a provisional thing. They'll help you with that. So uh, Neil Kelly is a forward-thinking administrator. We've got to thank him for figuring out all these really really cool things to do with making sure everybody turned out. I shared the fantasy with Neil Kelly for a hundred voter, hundred percent voter turnout. Thanks for listening, everybody. Talk with you on election day, June 5th next week. Thank you for listening.